together verses 7 to 12. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. And we'll begin by just reading the text and then picking up where we left off. Jesus here, uh, this is the Sermon on the Mount, as you remember, says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks will, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you when his sons ask for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Therefore... In everything, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, if you were here last week, and I know a number of you weren't, and and that's why we're kind of taking our time walking through these, because these verses probably are the most uh, important verses of the Sermon on the Mount. And as I mentioned last week, this is really almost, you could say, in these verses, the key Uh, are the secret to the Christian life. And and therefore, I don't want to run through these verses. I kind of want to walk. Remember I said take a walk with me because I want you to see uh, not just the interpretation, not just the doctrine that comes out of it, not just the duty, but even we might call the directions of how to apply this text to our lives. And for those who weren't here last week, and if you were, maybe this will be good just by way of uh, summary. I, I, I have, by way of review, just four points, just to kind of pull together what we said and then move forward. Uh, And again, these are summary points. Number one, uh, these verses are to be taken together as a unit. That's really key. And you say, well, that's not a big deal, but it is a big deal. Um, I mean, we could break them down. As you can see, verse 8, ask, seek, knock. That sounds like prayer. And sure, we can have a, a discussion about prayer, and we could even talk about the nature of man. Verse 11 talks about the the depravity of man, you being evil. And on the flip side of that, we could talk about the sinlessness of Christ and the goodness of God's there in verse 11. Uh, verse 12 obviously could be taken separately. The golden rule, uh, you know, as, as you want people to treat you, you treat them. Uh, but taken together, uh, Jesus is making one clear point, one clear main point. And uh, we, we need to see that. And so we, we mentioned that last week. The other thing to just quickly mention by way of review is that verses 7 to 12 here bring a conclusion, not to the Sermon on the Mount, because as you can see, the Sermon on the Mount goes to the end of chapter 7, but it does bring a conclusion to what I would say is the main body of the sermon. Uh, like every sermon, there's an introduction, and then there's a main body, and there's a conclusion. Well, Jesus is no different. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes would be his introduction. And then from chapter 5, verse 17, he launches a whole discussion on what the law and the prophets means. In other words, if you want to be a a subject in my kingdom, Jesus says, then you need to understand how to live. And how to live is actually reflected by obedience to the law. I'm not sure most Christians get that. I think most Christians struggle with what to do with the law of God. I think most Christians don't even understand 
what to do with uh, good works or, and, and the role of good works. I was on a Friday night, I was at Evangel, and we talk about, talked about that very thing. What is the role of good works in the Christian's life? I mean, if you ask a Roman Catholic, they would say role, the role of good works is absolutely necessary because without them, I, I can't get to heaven. I'm working my way up to heaven. Obviously, for the Christian, for us, the role of good works isn't um, meritorious. They don't provide the, uh, the, the basis of our salvation. As we often say, they're not the, the root of our salvation, but they are the what? Fruit of our salvation. They are the evidence of our salvation. That's the book of James, right? Show me your faith by your works. And so Jesus basically is coming in and saying, hey, let's restore what the law of God says. And so from chapter 5, verse 17, all the way to this point in chapter 7, verse 12, that's the main body of the text. And so the beginning of that text, let's talk about the law and prophets. And how does he end? Chapter 7, verse 12, the very last words are what? The law and the prophets. It's kind of the... the, the the telltale, letting you know where I'm beginning and where I'm ending. I'm going to begin with the subject, I'm going to end with the subject. That's important to know. A, a third point, just by way of reminder, and this perhaps is, is the key, is that as you look at the Sermon on the Mount, one of the questions you ask yourself is, how, how do I live the Sermon on the Mount? How do I leave, live the Sermon on the Mount when I look at all that God demands of me? All that he commands of me. In fact, you could say it another way. When I listen to the Sermon on the Mount or as I read the Sermon on the Mount, I'm actually quite left miserable. I'm miserable because, I, I, again, I can't live it. I mean, Jesus says, you know, don't get angry. I mean, maybe you haven't ever uh, murdered someone. And I hope none of us murdered anybody. But uh, good for you that you didn't murder anybody, Jesus says. But guess what? If you're angry with your brother, that's spiritual anger. And maybe you've never committed literal adultery, but if you ever lusted after a woman, that's spiritual adultery. So, so again, what is he doing in the main body of the sermon? He's taking the law of God and bringing it back, and he's, he's not revising it. He's refreshing it, as it were. He's letting us know what the, the intent of the law of God, because the, the scribes and the Pharisees got it wrong. They added to the law. You remember, they added about 600-some commands on top of Moses' law. In fact, speaking of the scribes, you go back to chapter 5, verse 20. What does he say there? He says, your righteousness, your righteousness needs to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees or you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, if you were on that mountain, if you were one of the disciples and maybe one of the onlookers listening in, that, that would have been an astounding statement. Because if there was anybody walking in Israel at that time that everybody thought for sure we we're going to go to heaven. It was the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, look how holy those men are. Look at all the commands they keep. Look what they don't do and what they do do. And Jesus says, well, hey, they're not going. They, they, they need a, they, they have a righteousness, but it's the righteousness that they have established on their own, not according to the law of God. It's a self-righteousness. The word righteousness there, or I should say the word exceeding there, is not, um, well, you've got to do more than them. That's, don't take that as the interpretation. What it means is you, you need to have an all whole other kind of righteousness. In other words, not an, a righteousness established on your own. You need to have a whole another, other kind of righteousness. Otherwise, you're not going to be in the kingdom of God. But the point here is, how do we live that? How, how do we have 
righteousness that is different from the scribes and the Pharisees? How do, how do we not live where we're, you know, sinning against the law? Well, when you come to the end here of chapters 7, verses 7 to 12, this, the, the answer's here. Right? And we mentioned that last week. To the question, how do we live the Sermon on the Mount? How do we have uh, victory over anger, victory over lust, victory over lying and stealing? How do we not become bitter and resentful and mean and unkind? How do we avoid hypocrisy and not be anxious and judgmental? All those things that he talks about in the main body of the sermon. How do you you live like that? Verses 7 to 12 is the key. Verses 7 to 12 is the answer. It's the solution to our problem. And then fourthly, just again, this is just quickly summarizing everything we said last week. And, and this perhaps is the most important point. You and I, as we entered the kingdom of God, when we became Christians, and this comes out in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's not how, that, that's not saying, well, let me say it this way. This is, being poor in spirit is how we entered the kingdom of God. When we recognized that we were sinners, when we recognized that God was a holy God and we stood in front of God and we recognized that we, were, we had nothing to offer to God, I mean, I read you earlier, Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul thought he was pretty rich towards God. And he lists all the, all the accumulating stuff, right? According to the, the law of God, blameless. The Pharisee, uh, tribe of Benjamin, and they were the crack troops. They, came, they were faithful to Judah, as you know, in the split of the kingdom. And he lists all of that, which was the internal story. Of Acts 9. Acts 9 is the external story of Paul's conversion. As he's heading off to Damascus, he comes face to face with Jesus Christ. As he comes face to face with Jesus Christ, and then he looks at all the stuff that he was accumulating, that, that he thought he was pretty rich, as it were. He looks at Christ, and he looks at that stuff, and, that, and then he says, well, that stuff's not, nothing but what? Nothing but dung. It's all self-righteousness. He understood that the righteousness he needed that exceeded the scribes and Pharisees was Christ's righteousness. The point is, uh, the apostle understood it. Um, The publican, or I should say the the tax collector, publican understood it there in Luke 18. Be merciful to me as he's beating his breath. Uh, Be merciful to me, uh, O God, a sinner. We enter the kingdom of God as a beggar. uh, And I I trust all of you did. I trust you understand in your own testimony. there There was that point where you realized that you needed forgiveness. You knew that you were under the wrath of God. You needed you knew you needed a savior, a mediator between you and God. And as we know, there's only one name given to men under heaven by which God which men can be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ. So that came to our realization. And so we walked into the kingdom as a beggar. But here's here's the point, and here's the point of verses seven to twelve. We not only walk in as a beggar, but we live the kingdom of life as a what? As a beggar. And again, I'm not so sure most Christians get that. I think we would all agree walked into the kingdom as a a beggar, but somewhere along the line, that pride kicks back in. 
that self-righteousness kicks back in. The legalism kicks back in. The antinomianism kicks back in. And, and we no longer live the beggar's life. But that's what Jesus is saying here. Begging. Begging is actually the, uh, the, the point of verses 7 to 8. Notice what he says there. Uh, You've you got to ask. You've got to seek. You've got to knock. And it's all in the present tense, which means you're asking and you're seeking and you're knocking. And they all describe one action. I know there's three different words there, but they're describing one action. But the, 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 the action is portraying great intensity. Again, the word that comes to mind is begging, pleading, pursuing. That's what you're doing, asking, seeking, knocking. This is describing the, the attitude we're to have. The attitude we're to have if we truly want to live the Christian life, the so-called victorious and blessed life. What's the attitude we have to have? You and I have to have, according to this, is an attitude of fortitude, an attitude of determination, vigor, appeal, insistence, whatever whatever synonym you want to come up with. The, the Puritans called it importunity. Remember I said that last week? Maybe we need to inject that 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 word back into our vocabulary just, just so we have that word and so the, the attitude here becomes a bit uh, refreshed in us. Importunity, that's the word that the Puritan used. The, the word we're using is persistence. Well, another word would be perseverance, but persistence has a bit of that drive behind it. It is, it is coming to that point in our lives and recognizing, listen, it, it's coming to that point in our lives and recognizing if we are ever going to have real change. Uh, what do I mean by change? Well, I, I trust you want to, you're sick of your sin. I'm sick of my sin. I, I, I want to be godlier. I want to be holier. I, I want to be faithful. I, I want joy in my life. I want peace in my life. I want contentment in my life. In fact, you could boil it all down to one word. I want power in my life. And if I'm going to have power in my life, I actually have to beg for it. That's what Jesus is saying. You're only going to live the Sermon on the Mount. You're only going to live the Christian life unless you have power. That's why most Christians fail. And not fail eternally, but fail temporally. Because there's no power in their life. And Jesus is saying, you've got to have power. And the only way you're going to have power is that you've got to have to beg. You're going to have to plead to God for it. And so what Jesus is saying here is you, we, we all... As Christians, must persist. We must persevere. We must progress forward. We must never give up. We must never lose heart. We must never be idle and passive. We must press on. And, and by the way, this is a great compliment to our study of the book of Hebrews because that's what they needed to hear, right? They were idle. They were passive. They were sluggish. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you've got to press on. You got to press on. That's that's the, you know, I, I think I've said this some time ago, but I, I remember listening to a sermon by Eric Alexander, who I heard died this past week, and most of you probably don't know who Eric Alexander is. He, he uh, I'll tell you a quick story about Eric Alexander. John MacArthur, and you guys know I went to Grace Community Church. John MacArthur came uh, up to the pulpit one Sunday and said, "You guys better come to church next Sunday because I'm bringing back with me the world's." Greatest expositor. Well, that got us all of, you know, our attention. And we all came back the following week. And we were sitting there thinking, well, John, you're not too bad yourself. But there's somebody better? And he brought back with him 
this Scottish pastor by the name of Eric Alexander. Um, and his sermons, or he's got his own, his son, I think, put up a website with all his sermons. Just Google Eric Alexander, pastor, listen to his sermons. And I still remember the sermons that he preached the following Sunday, and I have to say, the, it, yeah, I agreed with McCarthy, probably the best expositor I've ever heard in my life. But in one of those sermons, he said, I, I remember visiting Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, and, and spending the day with Martin Lloyd-Jones one day. I had the privilege of hanging out with Martin lloyd This is Eric Alexander speaking. I had the privilege of hanging out with Eric Alexander one day, uh, with Martin Lloyd-Jones one day. And it was interesting that after the service, everybody that was coming up to talk to him, he kept repeating the same thing as they left. As they walked away, he kept saying, press on, brother. Press on. Press on. Next person comes up, he has a conversation, takes him by the hand, press on, sister, press on, brother. And Eric Alexander says, man, does he not have anything original to say? He keeps saying this over and over and over again. And so he asked Martin Lloyd a little bit later, why do you keep telling people as they walk away to press on? And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, because that's what they need to do. That's exactly right. We need to press on on, to pursue, to be diligent in our Christian life. Turn in your Bible over to Philippians 3, because the Apostle Paul got that message. Just real quick, go over to Philippians 3 again. I was telling the prayer meeting that this is, the, my, one of my favorite texts comes in verse 13, but let me start with verse 12, just so you can see the flow here. Just jumping in, Paul says, not that I have already grasped it, um, not that I've already grasped it all, I'm not there, I haven't arrived, in fact, he says, or have already become perfect, I'm not there yet, but notice what he says next, I press on, everybody see that? That word in the Greek has the meaning of moving forward with diligence, with intention, with focus, with single-mindedness. I press on, he says. If I may also take hold of that for which also I was taken hold of by Christ Jesus. In other words, I'm pursuing, I am pursuing in my life the very thing for which Christ Jesus pursued in my life. What did Christ Jesus pursue in my life? I mean, why are we saved? Have you asked yourself that the question? There is an answer to that. Not just to get you out of hell. And that's, that's good. I don't want to go to hell. You want to go to hell? I don't want to go to hell. But, but, Christ didn't save me. God didn't save me to get me just simply out of hell. He saved me, Romans 8 says, so that I would be conformed to the image of His Son. So ultimately, in glorification, whatever that looks like, I will be made fully into the image of Jesus Christ. And in fact, he says it a little bit later, if you go down to verse 14, I press on, same word there, I press on with full attention, full diligence toward the goal for the prize. And you can actually translate that toward the goal, which is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, one day I will be called up. And when I get called up, I will be glorified. And that's my prize in eternity. My prize in eternity is that I'll be made fully into the image of Jesus Christ. But notice what he says. It's not just my prize. It's also my what? Goal. It's the prize in eternity, but it's the goal in time. 
That's why he jumped into verse 13. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet. I'm not there yet. But one thing I do. What's the one thing he did? He pressed on. He, he, he With all diligence, with all single-mindedness, he pursued Jesus Christ. And so there he says, I'm forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on. And as I said this morning to the folks in the prayer meeting, I... I that's that's helpful because everything in my life should be an overflow overflow of this one thing. We all do a lot of things. We all go to work. We have ministry. We're we're fathers. We're we're mothers. We're we're sons. We're daughters. We go to school. We we have ministries within the church. There's a lot. I mean, the Apostle Paul had a lot of things going on in his life. But he says it all boils down to if you had to freeze dry it and pack it down together and come out to one thing that I do in my life. I pursue Jesus Christ. Again, is that the message that we have? And then notice verse 15. Therefore, all who are what? Mature. Let's have this attitude. And if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you as well. I, I like that. The mature get this. The mature get this. What, what is the mature attitude, the mature thinking of a Christian? Well, coming back to our text in Matthew 7, the, the mature attitude and the mature thinking of a Christian is you've got to keep on asking. You've got to keep on seeking. You've got to keep on knocking, never stopping. Again, behind this is persistence. Or, or you know what, a, a, I think a word I threw out last week and somebody said that, that was a good word, and I'll repeat it, desperation. Is, is somewhere in there. Desperation, begging. Does this make sense? Am I making sense here? I haven't heard a lot of sermons on this over the years. The Puritans talked about it all the time, not surprisingly. And so if we want to be mature Christians, if we want to be holy Christians, godly Christians, conformed to the image of Christ Christians, and what we need is persistence, and behind that persistence is power. We've got to pray for the power so that we can persist. Again, the point is we came into the kingdom as beggars, and if we're going to live in the blessing and the blessings of the kingdom, uh, we must remain as beggars. We must learn the important discipline of persistence. Look, I get it. I, 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 I get that, and I, and I can reflect in, on my own life, but I think we're all kind of the same. We get discouraged too easily. I think we lose heart too easily. Um, we're lazy. We're passive. We're apathetic. Uh, but I, I hope you're like me that I don't want to stay like that. And you say, well, how do I get myself out of that? Well, here is the key. Here, here is the key. This is Jesus is telling us this, this is the answer. The key to being holy and to being happy is to keep persisting with God until he gives you what you need to be holy and happy. Kind of like Jacob. Remember Jacob wrestled? He says, don't you dare go till I get it. Wrestling with that angel. And then you look at verse 11. He says, he will give you good gifts. What, what are the good gifts? Remember, we, we closed on that last week. 
What is he talking about? And, and by the way, these are the beggar's logic. We, a beggar needs things, and the beggar here in the logic is that we need these good things. And, and that's what are those things? Those things that help us change, those, help, those things that strengthen our faith, those things that give us the power to obey. Well, what are they? It's the Holy Spirit. I mean, we talk about power. You're going to get the power from yourself? It's a spiritual power. The spiritual power comes from the Holy Spirit. I, again, I, I just I, I, we're walking, right? And I know I'm a bit repetitive, but I, I want you to get this. Turn your Bible to Luke 11. I, I think I closed with this last week. But that's the answer to where we get the power. It's, it's found here in Luke 11. This is the parallel verse to Matthew 7. In Luke 11, begin with verse 5. Jesus said to them, Suppose one of you had a friend, or has a friend, and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey. And I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his, what's the word? Persistence. There's our word. He will get up and give him as much as he needs. And here's the point of that parable. Verse 9, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now, suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son or for a fish, he will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? And here's the key, key verse. That answers the question, what are the good gifts in Matthew 7? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give? And here's the answer. Here's, here the, is what the good gifts are. The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. That's it. So again, where does this power come from? You want to persist? You need power to persist. Where is that power going to come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. And then you come back and say, well, what are the good gifts then? And it's not good gift. It's good gifts. It's plural, right? Where, what does that mean? Well, it's everything that the Holy Spirit produces. What does the Holy Spirit produce in your life? Grace, faith, hope, mercy, love. I mean, isn't that what we want in our lives? In a word, fruit? So, again, we... we we've, Pull all of that back together to our text in Matthew 7. And here's Jesus. Here's the Messiah standing on that mountain about to wrap up his manifesto of how to live in the kingdom. And, and as I said, the, the bulk of the sermon starts with chapter 5, verse 17. He's expounding the law of God. He's explaining the standards of the kingdom he, that he expects his disciples to live up to. And there, or here rather, in Verses 7 to 12 of chapter 7, he's closing that discussion. And he's telling them, and he's telling us how it is all possible to be done. And what they need is power. They need power from the Spirit of God. And remember, you've already had that power. 
It's the same prayer Paul had in Ephesians. Remember Ephesians 1? I pray that you would know of God's power. Remember that? In verse 18 and in verse 19? I have some specific prayers for you. Don't turn there. I'll just refresh your memory. I have, I have prayers for you that you would know of the love of God. But then he, 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 the last thing he says is that you would know the power of God in your life. And you should know God's power because it's the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That physical death. And that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the physical dead is the same power that raised you from the what? Spiritual death. Because what's the very next verse? Chapter 2, verse 1. We were dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, you want to know how powerful God is to you in your own life, which you should know, that, that he, he, before he made you alive, before he raised you up, before he seated you in the heavenly, he had to go down to get you. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You walked according to the course of this world. You, just, you did everything that the world did. You were a dead zombie, a dead spiritual zombie. And to make you alive, to turn you from an enemy of God to a friend of God, that took power. And you know that power. So I, I'm praying that you would know more of his power. Because he understands, Paul understands, you need power for the Christian life. And as I said, you, you, you already know what that power is because you're already in the kingdom. Remember, the, the Sermon on the Mount isn't for those... Uh, how to get in the kingdom. It's how to live in the kingdom. The assumption is you're already there. This is the flip side of John chapter 3. Remember, we've always said that. John chapter 3 is what? You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. And you can't be born again without what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and regenerates you. Makes you into a new creature. And so you already know that power. But you've got to keep persisting and asking God for that power. Does, does that make sense again? I'm not sure. I, look, I think we get that we need to persist. I think we, we, we understand that we need power. I just don't think we, we, we really understand that we've got to persist in that. I think that's the key. I don't think we persist. We quit too often. We go good for a while. We're kind of like the, um, you know, the, are you a, what was this, the illustration years ago I heard? Are you a, a steamboat, a sailboat, or a tugboat? You heard that before? <laughs> the sailboat is when the wind's blowing, you're going. Everything's going well. Uh, and the tugboat, somebody's got to tug you. You know, somebody's got to pull you. Everybody's pulling you. So you don't want to be the sailboat. You don't want to be the tugboat. You want to be the what? The steamboat. Because the power is coming within. And the power is coming from the Holy Spirit. Again, I don't hear much about this today. And that's why we're taking a walk. Again, sorry if I'm a bit repetitive here, but I just want to make sure you get the, the point. So with that, I want to pick back up where we left off. And in your bulletin, you'll notice, I can't remember where, you'll find it, uh, we have seven points that we're working through. And I really, last week was an introduction. I just stated the first point, but I do want to go back to it. And we, Lord willing, do that quickly and even get to the second point. 
some of these are quicker than others, so don't worry. I will finish next week uh, because some of them are, are, are quicker than others. But to really understand this whole subject of persistence, I, I broke it down into seven points. And as you can see there in your bulletin, we want to talk about the significance of persistence, just basically what we just talked about, stating the doctrine. Secondly, we want to talk about the subjects of persistence. That is, well, what are we persisting in? What are we, in what? Then we'll talk about the steps. How do we do that? How do we persist? Number four, let's talk about the stimulus of persistence. And that's really answering the question why. Why do we persist? Number five, we'll discuss the secrets of persistence. And that is not just persisting in what, but persisting with what. Number six, the saboteurs of persistence. We've got to be on guard for those things that will kill the persistence, those hindrances. So we need to make you aware of that. And then lastly, we'll just pull it all together because uh, I didn't want to stop at six. Seven's a better number. So the seven of uh, the sum of persistence. That is, what is the, what is the end result? Where, what, is, what is one through six going to give us? What are the consequences? So again, that, that's the flow we're going to work our way through. So let's, let's start with number one. And I'll try to do this quick and, and because I really like to get at least two done this morning. The significance of persistence. The significance of persistence. Um, and really the point here is that what Jesus is saying is nothing new. It's all over the New Testament. In fact, it's all over the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's everywhere. You just probably haven't seen it. Um, let, me, let me show you elsewhere where Jesus is making this point. Turn in your Bible to Luke 18. Or, or just listen, if, if it helps, just for the sake of time. Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable there that complements what he says here in Matthew 7. See if you can see it. Luke 18 1 through 8, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and what? Not to lose heart. How many of you lose heart? I lose heart. You, you could reword that. They ought to pray with importunity. In fact, I, I ordered a book the other day by Christopher Love, who was a, pur a Puritan, and it titles Importunity. I'm like, well, there you go. I want to. Uh, uh, the Puritans write here and there about the subject, but here's a whole book devoted to it Importunity, Persistence. So don't lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Here what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And you can hear in that persistent crying. And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Persistence. Persistence. God wants you to be persistent with him. I, I gave you the text of Matthew 11 last week, and I, I want to go back to it because this is my favorite text. 
Go back to Matthew 11, 12. Just for, really for those who weren't here last week, they need to see this. And if you were here, it's okay to see it again. Matthew 11, verse 12. A lot of people misunderstand this text. Matthew 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist, this is Jesus speaking. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent men take it by force. I think we all skip over it because you read the word violent there and you think, well, that doesn't sound good. We'll, we'll move on. Most translations I, I, I see translated violent, but th there's other words. It could be determination. You could even translate it persistent. It, what Jesus is talking about here is, is um, well, well, he's talking about salvation, but we can apply that to sanctification. We were quite violent, as it were, quote-unquote, spiritually speaking, in wanting salvation. And as I said, whatever, however we came into the kingdom is how we stay in the kingdom. So we walked in the kingdom with quote-unquote violence and we stay in the kingdom with violence. You say, well, what, am I, what are you talking about? Well, as I said, translate violent men with determined men. Translate violent men with vigorous men. In other words, what, what are these men doing, Jesus is saying? What, what are people doing when, when, when the... the, the the kingdom is available. They're forcing their way in. They want to get in. They want salvation. They're not apathetic about it. They're not, yeah, yeah, yeah well, one day. Well, one day. Yeah, it's a good, good message there. Good, thanks for that. But one day I'll, I'll, I'll clean up my act and I'll, I'll get there. Now, something in them says, I want it now. There's a desperation, a single-mindedness, a persistence, as I said. John Bunyan picked this up. L listen to this. In, in Pilgrim's Progress, he, he has a whole scene in, in his story reflective of Matthew 11, 12. Some of you might remember it, but let me read it to you again. Bunyan says, Then the interpreter took Christian and led him up towards the door of the palace. Then the palace is house beautiful. Remember that? The palace is the church, heaven on earth. And behold, at the door stood a great company of men as desirous to go in, but did not. There also sat a man a little, at a little distance from the door at a table side with a book and his inkhorn before him to take the names of them that should enter therein. He saw also that in the doorway stood many men in armor to keep it, being resolved to do to, do to the men that would enter what hurt and mischief they could. Now, was Christian somewhat in a maze? At last, when every man started back for fear of the armed men, Christian saw a man of a very stout countenance come up to the man that sat there to write, saying, Set down my name, sir. For which, when he had done, he saw the man draw his sword, put on a helmet, on his head and rushed towards the door upon the armed men who laid upon him with deadly force. But the man, not at all discouraged, fell to cutting and hacking most fiercely. So after he had received and given many wounds to those that attempted him to keep him out, he cut his way through them all and pressed toward forward into the palace at which there was a pleasant voice heard from those that were within, even of those that walked upon the top of the palace saying, come in, come in, eternal glory thou shalt win. 
And so he went in and was clothed with such garments as they, end quote. I trust that you followed that. Go back and read it for yourself. But basically, you got a palace, which represents the church. You got this guy that's standing, uh, sitting out there with um, a book. You got men guarding the palace. And you got this guy that wants to get in. And he walks up to the guy that's sitting and he writes his name. He's, my name's going to be in there. And he puts it on his helmet. He wields the sword. He goes up and cuts and fights the violently in order to get in. Because that's how desperate he was to get in. That's, that's the picture of Matthew eleven twelve. That's the picture that Bunyan is giving us for Matthew eleven twelve. Not only do we really want salvation, but as we are in, in the palace, in the kingdom, do we really want sanctification? And that's the question for us all. We need to be just as violent as in our sanctification as we were in our, in our salvation. Thomas Watson, again, a Puritan, he, he is another one that wrote a book on Matthew eleven twelve. That the title is The Christian Soldier or Heaven Taken by Storm. Have any of you read that? Um, yeah, if you, if you want a good Puritan book on this verse, Matthew eleven twelve, get that. This is what he says. It is described... I'm sorry, this, this is what somebody wrote about the book. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quote of Watson in a moment. The Christian Soldier, Heaven Taken by Storm, is a book, a very a book that is a very practical handbook on Christian living showing the holy violence of a Christian to put forth in the pursuit after glory. This is what Thomas Watson said. The earth is inherited by the meek. Heaven is inherited by the violent. Our life is military. Christ is our captain. The gospel is the banner. God's grace, our spiritual artillery, and heaven is only taken in a forcible way. Canaan was given to Israel freely, but they had to fight the Canaanites. It is not a lazy wish or a sleepy prayer that will bring us to heaven. We must offer violence. End quote. You catch that? Let me say that again, that last line. It is not a lazy wish or a sleepy prayer that will bring us to heaven. We must offer violence. Do most Christians think that way? Where's that attitude of determination? Where's that attitude of fortitude? In some ways, it's reflected in a couple other parables by Jesus. Remember the parable of the pearl of great price and the parable of the treasure in the field? Remember those two parables? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which is a man, which a man rather, found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. That, again, that's, that's the Apostle Paul. 
Done. Throw it out. One thing I do. I just pursue Jesus Christ with determination, with single-mindedness, with vigor, with insistence, with persistence. Holy desperation, we could say. A number of years ago, you guys remember that movie, Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai? I don't know how many years ago, but I remember driving down the road and, you know, there's a little poster, a billboard on the side there. And I, I couldn't help but think that should be a billboard for the church. Especially, you know, you look at pastors today. They, they should be where Tom Cruise was on, at the front line with the sword in his hand, with the, the, the rest of the samurais behind him going forward. But if you reflect on the church today, it's probably more like the Joker with a clown in the front with a bunch of other clowns behind him. Again, where's, where's the vigor? Where's the holy desperation? And you know what? It's not just the New Testament. Real quick, give me five minutes to just show you this. In the Old Testament, how many times is the word seeking? You probably see it all the time. Deuteronomy 4, he says, Moses to the people, There you will serve God, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek God. Psalm 105.4, seek the Lord. Psalm 119.2, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. Psalm 119.45, ask uh, oh, sorry. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. Psalm one twenty two nine. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Again, do a concordance study of seek. And the bulk of those in Hebrew is what we call in the PL stem, because there's different tenses, different stems. And the PL stem is what we call the causative stem. In other words, there's a there's a, a causative a, a force behind that. Not just, I'm going to stroll and, and find the Lord. I will cause myself to seek the Lord. There's determination. There's vigor. Again, insistence. That's what he's saying. That's what the psalmist is saying. In fact, and what God is saying, you'll never find me unless you what? Seek me with that kind of vigor. So J Jesus isn't saying anything new, really. This is how it's always been. The significance of persistence. I think you get the point. Let me just tell you point number two so we can wrap this up. The subjects of perseverance. What are, what are the subjects of perseverance? What are we persevering for? I mean, what, what do we wake up every morning and fight for? Or, or to put it another way, what do we need power in our lives for? Well, I, I, we, I, actually two words. Blessings and duties. We want to be blessed by God, yes, but we also have duties to fulfill. We have commands to obey, and we need power. I mean, even if you stay in the Sermon on the Mount, you go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the Beatitude attitude, we, we need power for that. We want, we want to be blessed. We want to be happy. We want to be content. We want to be joyful. And then you, you just keep working your way through the Sermon on the Mount. He, he calls us to be faithful. I want to be faithful. He calls us to be obedient. You've got to be obedient. You want to be righteous. You want to be kind. You want to be holy. You want to be sincere. Not a hypocrite. 
You want to learn how to forgive your enemies? You want to learn to not be anxious and be content? How many times does he have to say, don't be anxious? I mean, he only needs to say it once, but he said it three times. Don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. And how many of us get anxious every day? How many of us are anxious right now? You need power for that, right? How many of us want wisdom and discernment? How many of us want love? I mean, the list goes on. All the blessings and duties, those are the subjects of persistence. Living the Christian life. All that God demands from us. All the commands. Can't do it without the Spirit of God. I mean, Jesus put it, what? You can do nothing apart from me. You can do nothing. And how many of us try to do it without Christ and we fall flat on our face? I remember years ago, and I'll finish with this. I remember years ago uh, visiting home. My mom, dear mom, she she goes to, I don't know, a Bible every few years because she's always underlining it, always highlighting it. And you know, after reading it so many times, you can't, can't read it. <laughs> so you've got to get a new Bible. But she doesn't throw the Bibles away. She collects them and puts them down in the basement. And I remember being home one year. And going down in the basement and just pulling out one of those Bibles and providentially turning to this particular page. And I just remember on the side, she had written, and I can't even remember the verse she wrote it to, next to. She had written, when I try, I fail, but when I trust, I succeed. Did you catch that? When I try in my own flesh... When I try to try in my own power, with my own wit, my own wisdom, I'm going to fail every time. I might get a a little far, a little down the road, but I'll end up falling flat on my place. But if I trust God and I fully dependent upon Him, if my faith is strengthened in Him and He fills me with His power, which is the Spirit of God, I'm always going to succeed. And again, this is what Jesus is saying. And there's more that he's saying, and we'll pick this back up next week, okay? Father, thank you for our time this morning where we can just be encouraged, I hope, if not exhorted, maybe even rebuked that we don't live as we should, maybe because we don't know how to live. And I trust that what we've said this morning has been helpful. These are the words of our Lord that, has, that he gave to his disciples and has given to us so that we know how to live, that we need to keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking. (coughs) Knowing that God, our Heavenly Father, is a good God, maybe we don't ask, seek, and knock because there's some doubt there. Maybe there's some uh, uncertainty there. Maybe we struggle knowing that God is good. So maybe we come to... that conclusion, and if we know that God is a good God, that our Heavenly Father is benevolent and wise and good, then we come with full confidence, asking, seeking, and knocking. So help us where we are. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.